Chris, welcome to episode 254 of x and uh, well, we won't be talking about this book today, but it's uh, it's Inferno Day. Inferno number one hits the shelves today, which means, uh, well, I need to be even more of an internet hermit than I already am here, because I'm sure there are folks out there who are just chomping, chomping at the bit to spoil this for the folks who haven't made it to the shop yet, or who haven't gotten their deliveries, and probably won't get their deliveries for... A few weeks at this point, all in the uh, pursuit of being able to say, you heard it here first, which, um, well, you guys know my thoughts on that. But suffice it to say, I'm going to be even further out of the loop than I usually am on uh, the most current day stuff here. So, hey, if anybody out there has any news items about the line that you'd like me to talk about or just that you'd like to let me know about, please feel free to do so. I, uh, I would very much appreciate it, uh, so long as I can avoid being spoiled is all. But... That's for another day. Inferno we will be covering in the uh, the next run of episodes here. Today, we're going to be taking a look at a, uh, well, a September book. Since uh, DCBS did take forever to get me the August books, they threw in the first couple of September ones. So we do have Hellions number 15 to talk about today. Now, this issue had a November 2021 cover date. The story is called Don't Look Back Part 3, Fire and Brimstone. Written by Zeb Wells, with art by Roge Antonio, colors Rain Barreto, letters VCs Ariana Marr, designs Tom Muller, head of X for now is Hickman. Edit tomorrow, Basso White Sabolski, cover price $3.99. This one went on sale September the 1st of 2021. Now we open with a mostly blank quote page. Uh, this one's from Tarn the Uncaring, and it's uh, basically saying, Whatever you do, don't feed amino fetus which might tell you what's about to happen today. Now, the story kicks off with the Zeta team from the right. Now, if you remember, we met them either last issue or the one before, and uh, they're currently on a boat somewhere off the coast of Krakoa, and they've been sent to retrieve that right-bot baby that Nanny sort of kind of, we could say adopted, we could say bot-napped, I don't know, but uh, Nanny has it in her possession. Now, they're given names... So I guess we may as well commit them to uh, maybe not memory so much, but uh, I guess we'll we'll note them here in the script. Uh, so Zeta team roll call. We got Cobb, Barca, Martinez, and Susan. Now they check in with Dr. Merch, who orders some console jockeys to remotely flip a bunch of switches on Nanny's ship. Now it looks like the doc is trying to communicate, though not with the neonate right baby but with the ship itself we'll put a pin in that for now and head right into our double page spread of roll call and cred our characters include havoc orphan maker nanny mr sinister clone sinister wild child psylocke empath gray crow tarn the uncaring sick bird amino fetus mud gear mother rapture and hex butcher 
Now we resume comics content in Brooklyn, where, uh, you know, our Paris sinisters have arrived at Murder World. Well, they're above Murder World. Um, I can't remember if this was made clear during our funny game story, but Murder World is apparently 2,000 feet underground. Anyway, they arrive via the no-gate, which would, uh, you know, only allow sinisters to pass through. They then enter a warehouse and step onto a little lift to take them deep underground. And uh, it's a pretty funny scene. Because uh, Sinister, he oversells Murder World. He's like, we're here, this is the place. And tells the clone that, you know, you're just about to see it. Only when they get to the lift, uh, Sinister Prime remembers that it's a 15-minute trip down. (laughs) So uh, you get this weird, like, awkward silence between the two Sinisters as they travel. Like, uh, Prime Sinister's like, "Uh, well, we got some time. You have anything you want to talk about? And the stitched-up clone is like, no, we should just stand in silence. So it's a pretty funny scene. I, I totally wrecked it, but it's a, trust me, it's a funny scene. Now let's hop back to Krakoa, where in between this issue and last, the Locust Vile have not only defeated the Hellions, but also the army of Sinister clones who were unleashed before we wrapped up last time. Though uh, the uh, Locust Vile were not without casualty of their own. Now, the Vile's mud gear was apparently killed Though I don't recall that being made 100% clear last time out. Though in fairness, I don't remember that it wasn't either. And also, Amino Fetus seems to have lost an arm during the fracas. Now the Hellions pull themselves together and back up to their feet, and Grey Crow gets a bit sassy with Tarn the Uncaring. And so Tarn uses some TK or whatever he has here to lift John up into the air. Just then, Amino Fetus attempts to eat his dead partner Mudgear, which as we know, is a big no-no. Havoc asks Empath to step in and maybe do something, but he ain't feeling it. He claims to be tired of dying over and over again for the Hellions, and uh, in fairness, he kind of is the Quentin Choir of this team. And I gotta wonder just how much of an onslaught he's gotten him right now. Hmm. Now, Empath does suggest that maybe, maybe he turn Havoc back into the violent psychopath we saw back in Hellions number one, which uh, is... Not only an interesting turn of events here, but also a good reminder, because I bet some folks have already forgotten all about that. I only remember it because it's one of the things that I note every time we talk about an issue of Hellions as a, uh, I guess, a dangling plot thread that I'm looking forward to seeing uh, wrapped up. So we might remember it here on the show, but uh, I can't say how many folks out there in, uh, in the real world do remember this, uh, this note here. So at this point... Quanon's seen enough, and she shouts for everybody to stand down. Now, she's got an offer she's willing to make to Tarn in exchange for their being let go. Now, the information she has is, uh, well, she can tell them exactly where the Sinisters have gotten off to. And Tarn's all, you know what? Screw it, I don't need your permission to read your mind, and decides to just take the information. Well, he tries to, anyway. Psylocke's mind is too strong to breach. And so, they come to an agreement. Tarn will, in fact, let them go in exchange for the information. And this is where another Hellion secret comes out. The secret is that during the funny game story arc, well, the team didn't defeat Arcade, and they also didn't destroy Murder World. They were only left thinking they did. Now, Quanon reveals what she knows, and that really screws with her teammates. From here, we hop back over to Murder World, where the Sinisters have finally made their 15-minute descent. Sinister Prime shows his clone the uh, revelation he had, which was inspired by Tarn the Uncaring's own work. Now, as we knew, uh, Tarn has mixed mutant DNA to create his locus vile atrocities. And so, Sinister himself has taken a page out of that book, only with a bit of refinement. 
Now, Sinister refers to this as being the future, and the future is Chimera. Just then, Tarn and Mother Rapture arrive via Bladefish teleportation. Stitch Sinister immediately falls to his knees and chants praise Tarn, which is pretty funny. Back to Krakoa, Quanon continues spilling the beans. Great Crow takes this especially badly, uh, since this you know, kind of mucks up his mutual hot pants for Psylocke. And so he proceeds to tear chunks off of his body, revealing a cyborg skeleton underneath. He then uses the chunks that he tore off to create a really big gun. He then blasts the bejesus out of the locust vial. Well, the non-amino fetus members, because uh, once the other vial members are kaput, fetus eats them all. Like, forcibly. As in, Grey Crow just shoves their limbs into Amino's mouth, which again, as we know, is a no-no. From here, we have an info page, and it's the life cycle of Amino Fetus. And it's a cycle in four steps here. One is the, um, oh, easy for me to say, abominable germ. And this evolves into a heinous subversion of life force. Step two is the accursed embryo, and the embryo seeks out an evil master. Three, the amino fetus, which I figure is probably where we're at with the current one here, and uh, this is a being of insatiable hunger. And four is the atrocious infants. So after the amino fetus gorges, infants come. And then something, 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 the universe ends, I think? (laughs) More on that in a little bit. Or, you know, actually, the very next page. So uh, what we see here is a very disgusting and disturbing scene. Okay, we know that... uh, that old Grey Crow shoved limbs into Amino Fetus's maw. And what we have here is Amino Fetus doubled over. And there are dozens of small humanoidish forms writhing out of his back, attempting to, uh, I don't know, be born, maybe? And I tell you what, times like this, I'm happy that the art in this book is a bit on the cartoony side, <laughs> because... This could be really gross, or, or I guess grosser, because it's still, it's pretty nasty despite its cartooniness. It's not something you want to look at. Now, Tarn returns to the scene after being warned that Amino Fetus was fed, and he sends Amino Fetus into a black hole where he can't do any harm, to which Nanny suggests that Tarn is a terrible father. Tarn warns that, you know, this isn't over. You know, they'll meet again and he'll kill them all and yada, 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 yada. But once he's out of the way, the Hellions somehow arrive at Murder World. I'm not totally sure how, though Sinister does click a little handheld thing. Maybe he's opening a portal. Maybe not. Maybe they were using the Mother Rapture Bladefish Express. Maybe that was still open. I I don't know. The the portal does look a little bit... It's not like a round portal. It's not like a perfectly round Krakoan gateway sort of thing. So maybe it's the Bladefish. I don't know. Anyway, the Hellions show up. And as you might imagine, they're not happy with their leader. Sinister then giddily shows them the first Chimera. Now, the first Chimera, I mean, you might wonder, what would this, what would this character look like? You know, this is a mixture of mutant DNAs here. What, what two or more mutants could he be putting together to, uh, to launch this Chimera endeavor? Well, it's a hybrid Sinister-Tarn abomination here. So it's Tarn the Uncaring and Mr. Sinister in one body. And uh, Sinister suggests that this being has the power of God. Havoc and Grey Crow have heard all they need to hear, and so they go to rush in and wreck the place. Only, well, not so fast, folks, because Quanan stops them. And it's time for another shoe to drop. Now, she tells the team why she's been helping Sinister, why she's been so subservient, why she's been keeping secrets from them. And, I mean, we already know why, but uh, it's here that she explains that... uh, 
Sinister has her daughter. And of course, that's the AI daughter from Fallen Angels. Sinister now basically dares the Hellions to destroy the place, because, you know, if they do, Psylocke's only child will perish. And Grey Crow immediately stands down, and um, if we're being honest, he looks to be quite relieved. It seems as though he can understand and sympathize as to why Quanon acted so cagey, and uh, at this point really isn't taking it personally. He's like, okay, you had your reasons... Those reasons were good. Those reasons were for your family. Uh, so he's he's okay with it. The Sinisters then go to hatch the Chimera when Empath decides to uh, well tweak a little crazy in Alex Summers's head. Now as Havoc Rampage is destroying everything in the lab, Empath whispers, Emma says hello, into Mr. Sinister's ear. Then the entire facility goes boom, goes white, and we are out of here. Next time out, we got Weekend at Gabby's 2 over in New Mutants, and uh, maybe a little bit of clarification on the uh, resurrection protocols as it pertains to dupes. But uh, we'll worry about that next time. For now, I mean, we have one of the last handful of issues of Hellions to discuss, and uh, I'm going to miss this one. (laughs) I'm definitely going to miss this one here. We actually got a bit to talk about, which is refreshing, because I feel like the last handful of episodes here, there really hasn't a whole, been a whole heck of a lot to say about the issues we're talking about. Everything's kind of just treading water, kind of just there, waiting for waiting for Inferno, basically. And uh, that's not to say that Hellions isn't waiting for Inferno as well, but I feel like they're doing it with, uh, they're doing it in style. You know, we're, we're progressing the story here. Makes me feel like this book actually has a plan. You know, um, we talk about Marvel and their, uh, I don't know, feelings of embarrassment when a book gets canceled. You know, when a book is uh, not performing on the sales charts and uh, how they will retroactively say something was always intended to end at, uh, at issue number whatever, right? Here with Hellions, I'm not feeling any truncation yet. I'm not feeling any sort of uh, inorganic storytelling. This feels like the story is being told at the pace that it needs to be told at here and just doesn't feel like they're scrambling to fit their stuff in here. So this is really well told. It's really well paced, and um, it's just a wonderful book, and I'm going to miss it very, very much. I hope that there is a place for Zeb Wells uh, on the other side of Inferno, and I, I guess we'll probably be finding that kind of stuff out in the coming weeks here as the solicits start to was it October? We'll probably get the January solicits, and I think that's where we're going to get a lot of information. So I guess we just got to bide our time for about two, maybe three weeks, and then we'll get some answers here. But let's talk about this issue. From the very get-go, I had uh, I had made the argument or floated the theory, I guess, that maybe Havoc was put on this team as a mole, right? Because we talked about how weird that was at the start of this volume where Havoc is someone who the Quiet Council have known for, I mean, we don't know how long, we don't know what the Marvel sliding timescale is here, but for us readers, he's been a part of the team since pre-Giant Size. So, I mean, he's been around for quite a while here, so it would stand to reason that characters like Professor X, Storm, Jean Grey, Nightcrawler, Kitty, you know, they, they would know him and maybe not be so quick to throw him on this strange team of, uh, of broken characters here. Now, I don't know how much of this is, uh, is kind of spinning out of the Axis story. That's one of the things that I've heard in doing a little bit of research, because that's during one of my blind spots in recent Marvel. Uh, I tried reading that Axis storyline, and uh, 
yeah, it was a toughie. It wasn't one of my favorites, and I kind of just uh, pulled the plug on it halfway through. So I guess you could say I'm uh, access lapsed. I don't know how that all rolled out here. I know it had to do with people sw- switching their moral compasses. You know, if you're a good guy, you're a bad guy, and if you're a bad guy, you're a good guy. I know Havoc turned bad there, but my Havoc experience gets very, very cloudy and muddy around then because I know he was part of the Unity team, I think he had a romantic entanglement with the Wasp, and they even had a child. Maybe not in this world, but in another. I, Yeah, I, I'm, I need to catch myself up on early 2010's Havoc to try to, try to get myself a, a little bit of better footing here. But I think that was the assumption here, that Havoc was being put on this team here due to some trauma that uh, resulted from the Axis storyline, or maybe... Maybe a latent evilness inside him that hadn't been hadn't been flushed out fully. And we did see, I don't remember which issue it was, but we did see him and Emma having a conversation not too terribly long ago about how he needs to remain on the team. You know, he's asking why he's got to be there, and she's like, no, no, you just have to be there. And I think I took that as, you know, you're the mole. You know, you may not know you're the mole, but you're the mole. You know, we need you on the team because we need we need eyes and ears on some of these characters here. And now I'm starting to wonder if that was a red herring. Like, were we given side-eye to Havoc this whole time, waiting to see, you know, pieces fall into place here when maybe we should have been looking at Empath? You know, Empath does the thing. He makes Havoc uh, go crazy. He whispers into Sinister's ear that Emma says hello. An argument can certainly be made that uh, we were misdirected going into this here. And And if that's the case, I think it was done so, so well, because I I didn't see this sort of thing coming. I think I viewed Empath as being the person on this team who was just there to die over and over again and serve as as sort of an instigator and as a comic relief. But that said, that doesn't rule out that Emma might have been doing something to Havoc here, like kind of screwing with him to keep him on edge, right? A little off-center, even, where maybe he'd be a little bit more empathically vulnerable. You know, easier to control by Empath and to do whatever bidding needs done here, like destroying an entire lab here, potentially, I guess, killing uh, Quanan's daughter or whatever remained of her in the digital form. I mean, does that does that extend to killing a human? Does that extend to uh, being a whole worthy offense? It's we got questions, and that that's a really good thing here. Further, could this screwing with havoc? maybe extend to the Council's refusal at bringing back Madeline Pryor. You gotta figure that that did a number on him emotionally, mentally, you know. It's uh, definitely a way to keep him kind of on edge here and maybe a little bit easier to manipulate. And speaking of manipulation here, let's stop and think about Emma Frost here and her role on Krakoa as it is, right? Let's look at the entire line of books here, or, or a lot of the line of books, because... I know I've mentioned over and over again that Emma is just showing up way too much in these books, right? It's like, she's just everywhere. Well, maybe that was the plan all along, right? I mean, she's got feelers in just about every book in the line. Here we have Hellions, and Empath is here, one of her former students, one of her original students. He's here, and uh, there's definitely a connection between the two of them. Let's jump over to X-Corp. Monet is there in a very powerful role. She's one of the CXOs, despite not having any sort of experience or any sort of uh, corporate pedigree, uh, besides just being a rich kid. Like, that, I mean, is that... 
I mean, we could talk about how simplistic X-Corp is in how it presents its information here. It's like, well, you're rich, so yeah, you could be a CEO. But maybe, maybe it's all due to Emma. Maybe Emma got her in there. Maybe Emma has, well, I mean, we know she has a lot of pull, right? So maybe she just floated the idea, oh, Monet is, uh, Monet's qualified, let's, uh, let's have her in there. Let's look at the X-Men team here, the elected X-Men team. We got another Gen Xer in there. We got Sync. And, I mean, we also have one of her former lovers in Cyclops. The Marauders book is basically all Emma, right? Uh, That's something I've complained about. Like, where's our cast? All we're seeing is Emma. And we gotta also remember she did the whole Maura McTaggart Hospital thing just to get under uh, Charles and Eric's skin. So she's definitely wielding a bit of power there. Let's look at the Stepford Cuckoos. They've got roles throughout several of the books here. Cable and X-Force in particular. Storm, a, uh, who's been getting chummier and chummier with Emma as we've gone on here, is now the queen of the solar system. I don't know, maybe maybe this has all been brewing from the get-go. Because, uh, you know, Emma is on the Inferno ad that says we cannot trust our leaders next to Magneto and Charles. Then again, well, there's also a certain shapeshifter on the island who might be making it seem as though Emma is pulling the strings to maybe stir up some distrust among the heaviest hitters on the Quiet Council. Remember, during the gala, those uh, logic diamonds were delivered to Emma, and Emma didn't have any sort of uh, memory of ordering them from the Shi'ar, so it's certainly not outside the realm of possibilities that, uh, well, maybe there's someone on the island pretending to be Emma. Which would explain why she's everywhere, right? But um, definitely some interesting food for thought here. Let's shift gears over to the uh, Locust Vile. Now, the Vile were defeated. They were defeated by the Hellions, or I guess John Greycrow himself just... uh, Going, you know, ape with his, uh, with his, uh, you know, I never really understood his powers. Um, I think I kind of, maybe I conflated his powers with uh, Forge, but with like the added twist that he could turn anything into a weapon, kind of like that, uh, was it Gunfire over in DC? Or whoever that was during the uh, blood uh, Bloodlines? Was it Bloodlines or Blood Ties? Blood Ties was X-Men Avengers, so Bloodlines over in uh, in DC 1993. There was that one character who could turn anything into a weapon. So I think that's kind of the amalgamation that I made in my head for Grey Crow. It's like he was Forge and, was it Gunfire? I don't know. The, the, whoever it was that could ta- make anything into a weapon. And we see that here. We see him taking chunks off his body, which revealed a cybernetic skeleton, which... I didn't, I didn't know he was a cyborg underneath there. Maybe he's partially uh, mechanical, partially organic. But I'm just going to have to plead ignorance on that one because I really, I really don't know. In any event, I thought this was a very creative way to take care of the Locust Vile. Basically using you know, the, the danger that they posed on the world against themselves. To where, unwittingly, they helped the Sinisters escape whatever the hell Tarn was going to do to them in a murder world. And makes it so that uh, maybe we'll see him again uh, before long. And it makes me wonder here, Tarn is part of the Great Ring of Araka, right? Uh, does he report this back to them? Does he say, hey, my, uh, my atrocities were, were killed and I sent Amino Fetus to uh, a black hole somewhere? I wonder how much of what he does is uh, publicly known or just known to his peers in the Great Ring here. Because we know Sinister has a lot of things kind of under the table here, where the Quiet Council probably only knows 10-15% of what Sinister actually does. And I wonder if the Tarn analog is uh, is similar to that. 
I'd almost assume it would have to be because I don't think Storm would uh, would stand for this sort of behavior here. She made it pretty clear last time that, you know, if you mess with that island, you're messing with me and you don't want to mess with me. So I'm guessing this is probably going to be kept on the down low and maybe we'll see like a Locust File 2.0 somewhere down the line here. We know he has the technology, so uh, it's, I guess it's probably only a matter of time. Now, speaking of the technology... Here we see the first Chimera. Sinister has made a blend of He and Tarn, which I think that's a very interesting starting point here, and I probably should have dug through the long boxes to uh, grab the Hoxpox issues to see if there was any sort of mention of what the first Chimera was, just to see if if this was always in the cards, or if this is if it was left nebulous enough to where, I mean, it, this isn't contradicting anything, but it's also not confirming something that we already knew. In any event, I think it's a really good starting point here, considering the two people who have the most to do with this technology are Sinister and Tarn here. Uh, Tarn does it with reckless abandon here, very chaotic in his, uh, you know, machinations, merging DNAs and stuff, whereas Sinister is more uh, regimented. He's uh, refining this to make it... I don't know, a little more precise, a little less grotesque, <laughs> um, whatever the case. This worked for me, and I wonder if uh, the Tarn Sinister Chimera survived the blast. And of course, I also wonder if Psylocke's daughter survived the blast here. So we got a whole lot of plate spinning here, and uh, like I said, I'm going to miss this book so much because I, I can't wait. I can't wait to find out what happens here. The potential for you know dramatic fallout here, I mean, the sky's the limit. This is... Really well-told comics, and like I mentioned at the beginning of uh, the little discussion portion of this program, it doesn't feel truncated, it doesn't feel rushed. It feels like this is ending exactly how it was supposed to end from the beginning. And I mean, we do have three issues to go. For all I know, we'll get into the next issue and it'll be a breakneck, you know, sprint to the end just to fit stuff in, but at least to this point, everything feels perfectly organic. The only bits of this story that I really didn't care a whole lot about was uh, the opening few pages here with the, uh, was it the Zeno? No, Zeno. Zeta, Zeta team? Yeah, Zeta team. The uh, psychopaths from the right. And now it's clear to me why I mistakenly called them Zeno, because they remind me a lot of Zeno over in X-Force, who also don't really interest me all that much. But I'm guessing that uh, they're just bubbling along and they will probably be a big part of the conclusion to this uh, volume here. And I've got enough faith in Zeb Wells that he will make it something worth reading. So I'm not too worried, but uh, we will get there when we get there. I think that's probably all I have to say about this issue. Uh, the art comes to us from Roge Antonio, and like I said, it is a little bit on the cartoony side, but that is perfectly fine <laughs> for the tone of this book. Not only is it a funny book, but also... I didn't want to see the gore on uh, on Amino Fetus's back. That that would have been that, what was that fella uh, Clayton Crane who did um, the uh, X Force run. I think it was an Abnett and Lanning run way back, uh, probably two thousand five, two thousand six or so. It was this very very beautiful painted style, but it was also very dark. And um, I could only imagine what uh, someone like that could do with Amino Fetus. And I tell you what, I'm glad we we didn't find out. Because this was this was just gross enough without uh, without making me want to gag. This wasn't exactly uh, Doctor Nemesis's head, so that's a that's a good thing. That's a good thing. But I think that's about all I have to say about this issue. Now, usually we'd hop into the mailbag right now, but uh, we don't have any mailbag today. I think I've been plowing through the letters a bit too quickly, so we do not have any letters today. But 
I do want to go into shout-outs here. I want to thank the folks who engaged and interacted with my uh, social media thingamabobs here, where I try to, I don't know if the word is advertise, but uh, get the word out about the program. So I want to thank the folks who uh, helped me signal boost and raise awareness for this little program. Over on Twitter, I want to thank Ed Moore, the Between the Pages blog, Longbox Crusade, Mark Jagger, Jesse D. Young, Chris Bailey, Walt Nealon, Dave Schultz, Jason Colby, and the Longbox of Darkness. On Facebook, I want to thank Al Sedano, Chris Bailey, Jeremiah, Pat Sampson, Andrew Franklin, Walt Nealon, and Billy D. Thank you all so much for helping me get the word out there and maybe uh, reaching a new ear or two. It uh, really does mean a lot. Speaking of which, I'd like to extend the humblest thanks to my patrons. Andrew Franklin, Ed Moore, Walt Nealon, Jeremiah, Jason Colby, The Scary Stuff Podcast, Jesse D. Young, and Damien. Thank you all so much for your support and for believing in me. But I think that's going to do it for today. I'm not going to I'm not going to tempt fate and try to find news unfortunately because I don't I don't want to be spoiled on Inferno. So uh, if you guys know of any non-Inferno news, please please send it my way and uh for that and for any other reason, you can reach me several different ways. You can find me on Twitter at Ace Comics. You can shoot me an email over to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. You can call into the X-Lapsed voicemail hotline at 623-396-JERK. For blog posts and show notes, you can head to chrisoninfiniteearths.com. You can join us on Facebook. Our little group is 90s X-Men. And, of course, for the full archives, you can head to chrisandreggie.podbean.com, and all that audio is available anywhere you get your podcasts, noise, sound, songs, and all that stuff. Finally, we do have the Patreon. That's at patreon.com slash xlapsed. I'm still learning on the job here, learning as I go, but there is plenty of exclusive content there already, and there will continue to be more and more in the days, weeks, and months to come. But that's going to do it for today. Had a really good time with this episode. It's nice to have a uh, a story we can sink our teeth into. It's It feels like a, <laughs> a thing that's just happening more and more rarely of late, so... To get an issue where we can engage in some level of, you know, theorizing and analysis, it's just a lot of fun, and I hope you all enjoyed it as well. Now I want to thank you all for spending a little bit of your day with me today, and until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya! Oh